Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Job's one of those books in the Bible which blesses us, I think, simply by being there. It's great that there's a book like this in the Bible. It's great that God's revelation of himself includes a book about human suffering and the mystery of God in all of that. I think we could say that about the whole of the book of Job, but chapter 3 in particular seems important to me for contemporary Christians. Because there's a version of Christianity doing the rounds in the affluent West these days that seems to me to be very shallow and trite, superficial and happy-clappy, more in just than its musical preferences. It's the kind of Christianity that somebody once said would have Jesus singing a chorus at the grave of his friend Lazarus. A kind of Christianity that's incessantly upbeat, that seems to be all about creating some sort of a feel-good factor, about people leaving its gatherings on some sort of a buzz or high. It's a kind of Christianity that sings of God that in his presence our problems disappear. And it's a brand of Christianity that actually believes that that's true. It's not true for Job. He comes before God and his problems do not disappear. And chapter 3 bears anguished testimony to that. Last week in chapters 1 and 2 we saw the the heart-rending loss that Job experienced. We saw also in a way that Job couldn't the conversation that had gone on in heaven that served as a context for Job's loss. God had drawn the attention of Satan to Job, the apple of his eye, and Satan had challenged God saying that Job only followed and was only faithful because God had blessed him, because God had given him so much. And God went on to give Satan two terrible permissions. First of all, he allowed him to take away everything that Job had all his possessions, and even his children. Second, God allowed Satan to take even Job's own health. Now, none of this, remember, was a punishment for Job. Job wasn't singled out because he was particularly sinful. Actually, it's quite the opposite. He's singled out because he's particularly godly. And that this initial onslaught In chapters 1 and 2, Job shows an incredible faith. He he says some of the the most wonderful things, most wonderful statements of faith in the whole of Scripture. Chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be blessed. Chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we accept good from the Lord? And not trouble. 
They're, they're wonderful statements of faith. They're powerful responses. And they're the kind of thing, our human nature, we want to celebrate those. In those early chapters, Job's like a hero. And we easily find ourselves thinking, Job suffered, Job trusted God, so should we end a story. If only we could be like Job. But it's not the end of the story, of course. In the opening verse of chapter 3, Job curses the day of his birth. And our pious we answers start to unravel. Job suffered, Job trusted, so should we, doesn't work quite so well by the time we get into chapter 3. Job begins a protest here that will go on and on and on. He will lament here and he will not give up. And we need to get used to this. Bear in mind too, we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 how, how God chose Job particularly because of his godliness. Bear in mind too that in chapter 42, God's going to reaffirm Job. So everything that happens between chapters 3 and 41 the things that Job says, we know that in the final judgment, God is not angry. So there's something about what Job's saying here that is acceptable to God, even if it doesn't seem acceptable to us. This morning, we're going to take a little bit of time to think about the suffering of Job, and we're going to notice three things. First of all, that Job suffered alone that he suffered a loss of hope. And thirdly, that even in his suffering, he couldn't avoid God. Firstly, the the idea that he suffered alone. In chapter 2, verse 8, we learn that Job took a piece of broken pottery and he scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. He's sitting on the dump outside the city, the place where the rubbish has been burned. That's where you would be if you had the kind of skin disease that's been described here at Job with with sores from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. He sits there alone in exclusion. Sure enough, his wife appears in chapter 2, verse 9, but only to argue with him. In chapter 2, verse 11, his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they hear about his troubles and they come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. By the way, they come from different exotic sounding locations. That's, that's a symbol for us that these three men are gathering from all over the world. The wisdom of the world has been gathered to speak to Job's suffering. We'll see more of that in the weeks ahead. Whenever they see him, his friends see him sitting in the ashes, they're appalled they're, they're wondering, is that really Job? Could it be? They hardly recognize him. They begin to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. 
I'd always thought that the three guys sitting there for a week before they said anything was good, that this was them at their best, because what we discover is once they do start to speak, they, they definitely aren't much help. But I'm beginning to think that their silence mightn't have been as helpful as I'd originally thought. You see, what they're doing there, if you, you read it, they're, they're weeping, they're tearing their robes, they're sprinkling dust on their heads. Those are all things you do in that culture to mourn a corpse. And when you do that for seven days, this all begins to look very recognizable. What does Joseph do when his father Jacob dies? Well, we read in Genesis chapter 50 that he mourns for seven days. When King Saul dies, we hear that the the city of Ramoth-Gilead mourns him for how long? For seven days. So it could well be that this, this silence of Job's three friends and the, the show of grief that they've put on isn't so much a, a silence of sympathy as a silence of despair. They're silent because they've nothing to say. In their mind, Job's as good as dead. In our culture, it might be like going around to visit a, a seriously sick friend and bringing a coffin with you and leaving it sitting open in the room, leaving the lid open, all the while a hearse running just outside the house. When the time comes for someone to break the silence, it's not one of his friends who offers any comfort. Job has to do that himself. Job is terribly alone. Suffering does that. It makes us feel alone. If, if you start and think about it, even from the, the most trivial illness, the kind of thing where you have a flu and it keeps you in bed for two or three days, you start to miss out on things, on community life. You can't be with the family. You can't go to work. You can't be with the worshipping community. And as our suffering increases in intensity, so does our sense of isolation. Sometimes we can share a loss with somebody and still feel alone in our suffering. So whenever parents lose a child, only the father knows what it's like to be the father of a a lost child. He doesn't know truly what the mother is going through to have lost her son or her daughter. No matter how much they share, there's a, a deep level at which they suffer alone. We need to recognize this about suffering. Those who suffer, suffer alone. Job suffered alone. It's noticeable too, secondly, that he suffered a loss of hope. Job's in despair. And and despair really is the denial of hope. It's when your life no longer looks forward and instead You can only look back. Human despair is fundamentally about losing our hope that there is a good future and turning back to the past. Job does this again and again in chapter 3. He basically curses his origins. 
He curses the day of his birth and the night of his conception. He begins with his birthday. Look at verses 3 to 5. May the day of my birth perish. In verses 6 to 9, he turns to the night of his conception. Let that night be barren, he says in verse 7, with no shout of joy heard in it. Take away the sounds of delight that accompanied my conception, he says. By the time we get to verse 11, he seems to have accepted his conception and his birth. Now he asks in the following verses, well, given that I was conceived and born, why did I ever stay alive? Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? In verse 13, he's dreaming of death. For now I'd be lying down in peace. I'd be asleep and at rest. Job is obsessed with death because it's the only way out of the life that he's living. In a chapter where he's been talking about conception, about birth, and about life, the very things that should fill human beings with hope, for Job it's all turned negative. He looks to the future and all he sees is a a no-entry sign. If only I'd never been. What are you looking forward to, Job? nothing. There is no future for me and I wish that there'd never been a past. Friends, if we're going to say here this morning all that must be said for those who believe in Jesus Christ, then we need to say that the best is yet to come. There are always better things ahead for those who know and love Jesus. There is always hope for the future in God's hands because the future is in God's hands. He's preparing things for us that we can't even begin to imagine. All of those things are true. But we need to recognize that there may be times in our lives and in the lives of friends and loved ones when the future looks totally blank when there's nothing that they can hope for and it's possible at those times to lose all hope and to despair will you allow for that whether it's in your own life or in the life of someone nearby Job suffered alone. Job suffered a loss of hope. And the last thing we want to say about Job's suffering this morning is that even in his suffering, Job couldn't avoid God. It seems very unlikely from what Job's saying in chapter 3 that he would have had any conscious sense of God's presence with him. Maybe Job would have echoed C.S. Lewis's words, recorded in a grief observed. Lewis was reflecting on the, the death of his wife, and he asked the question, where is God in my suffering and in my grief? 
And he said, this is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or or so it seems, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. The sound of bolting and double bolting inside. And after that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more in fact the silence will become. There are no lights in the window. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. Job standing outside of a bolted door. But he knows that he can't turn away. Right here in the depths of his misery, he knows that he has to deal with God. And we'll see as the book unfolds that that will become Job's journey. Even in God's absence... God somehow is there. As we come to the end of chapter 3 and finish for this morning, we leave Job terribly alone, sitting with these friends who want to comfort him and have nothing much to say. He's lost all hope. He's despairing. He's wishing that he'd never been born. Is there anything that we can say to Job or someone like him. It seems to me that there is, even to this poor soul, suffering the deepest anguish imaginable. There is something that can be said that goes beyond sentiment and sympathy alone. We remember another blameless believer one who lived about 2,000 years ago. Although he was with three friends in a garden, he was terribly alone as he suffered the anticipation of the cross. When he asked them, could you not wait with me one hour? They could not. On the cross, he experienced a darkness deeper than the darkness of any night, deeper than Job's darkness. And he too knew that experience of the absence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because Jesus Christ has plumbed the depths of human sorrow and suffering that he's now uniquely qualified to walk with us through ours. No one who suffers need suffer completely alone. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that in your word this morning you've allowed us to 
to think on a part of our lives that is often untended, that's often ignored, our deep hurt and our heartache and suffering, the deep hurt and heartache and suffering of our friends and loved ones. Lord, thank you that you don't gloss over this. You don't ignore it as so much of our culture does. Thank you that you have lived through it. Jesus, come among us by your Spirit. Bind our broken hearts and heal our wounds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.